Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, a podcast where we speak to amazing entrepreneurs doing great things in business and beyond. Happy 2020 to you all. We will be back in a few days with live episodes, and we've got a ton on the table for 2020, so very excited. Meantime, we are rewinding back the clock today to my chat with Shant Martirosian, the founder of The Burgers Priest, arguably the biggest Canadian burger success story in recent memory, and a chain that has really changed the entire burger culture. Shant, a dedicated Christian, went from pastoral ministry into entrepreneurship, and his story is nothing short of unbelievable. In this episode, we get into his journey, which begins with his desire to find purpose, his passion for food, how he worked 100-hour weeks consistently in order to save for his first location, scaling up and resisting the franchise model, operating on burnout, his experience dealing with fear, the company's recent exit, and so much more. This podcast was deeply meaningful, so it seems appropriate that we air it again and here we go. My incredible conversation with Shant. Stuff around how you originally wanted to be a pastor and then you became an entrepreneur. Like, let's just start there. I don't even know uh, what my question would be. So I'll let you explain the origins of, of this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was really a very weird time in my life. I mean, I was, um, I was, I've kind of been a Christian since, um, I was about uh, 17 years old. I had kind of a, uh, conversion experience that was very, uh, telling in the sense that I, I really felt that I wanted to do something that, that kind of gave back that, uh, took care of people that changed culture that was working for God. So, I mean, I was going to church a lot at the time and kind of felt a call to pastoral ministry. And yeah, me, my friends, uh, some of my mentors were all kind of on board saying, yeah, we think you got to do this. And uh, so I was happy to. And so I went to Tyndale College and Seminary in uh, North York. It was uh, 1999 and uh, graduated. I remember it was a four-year program of just, uh, just especially just a liberal arts education with a lot of Bible focus. Um, And... I graduated, and I remember I got the piece of paper that – so about 30, about 30 year in, I was like, I don't know if this is what I want to do because I felt this kind of entrepreneurial burning inside of me, like there's stuff I want to do. And I, back then, I was like, maybe I should get into real estate. Um, and I had some other ideas that some of them worked, some of them didn't, just little, you know, just little hustler jobs on the side. I remember graduating. I walked up to uh, grab – they called my name, and I grabbed the piece of paper and – 
I shook the guy's hand and that was it. This whole kind of experience culminated to me looking at my professor at the time after in the ceremony and, and I looked at him, I said, uh, I'm a waiter. And uh, he goes, a waiter is not what you are, it's just what you do. And I started kind of, I had a little bit of tear in my eye because I was like, I was, I don't know, 20, 23, 24 years old, kind of didn't really know what I was doing with my life, knew I had some gifts, but didn't really know how to use them. And I had a bit of a teary eyed moment. He looked at me, said, just stick to what you know, and, and you'll be fine. And my whole life was food. And I knew it. I mean, if there was one thing that I knew and knew well, it was food. And all through my life, like I started to just trace back how the, the passion that I had for food, the, the passion I had for excellence, the disdain my friends had for me for going to restaurants with me because me always saying, I hate this, I hate this, I hate <laughs> this. And just very hypercritical. And so I stuck to what I knew. And I was a waiter and uh, I, I had some cooking experience in some restaurants and I just kept waitering. And um, for seven years, kind of went through the process of working hard, praying, asking God, saying, what do you want me to do? Like, what, what is it that you have for me? And uh, it really wasn't answered until 2006. I was working at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse at the time and the Air Canada Center as well. And, and the CN Tower, actually. And uh, one, of the, one of my friends that I was working with, we always kind of went out to eat after work. He said to me, do you want to go get a burger? And I said, yeah, let's go get a burger. And he goes, well, where do you want to go? I said, I don't know. He goes, well, the best place to get a burger is in New York. There's no really good burgers in Toronto. And I would say that was a true statement back in 2006. There was nothing really, the food scene in Toronto hadn't really started yet. So it was just kind of that. We went to New York City, literally drove that night at midnight, got in my car and drove. We both had a couple of days off. Ended up at a 125-year-old pub called PJ Clark's in the east side of Manhattan. And uh, he ordered a rare cheeseburger. And back then, I didn't even know what that, that existed. Mm. And uh, I ate it. And it was literally one of these God moments of, you know, when in the Bible, when it talks about God speaking to someone, there was a very, it wasn't audible, but it was as close as it could possibly be, this feeling of, I want you to open a burger place. And uh, it was that life-changing, that burger I ate. It and I was like, man, that's it. And so I decided that right then to go home, quit my jobs, and come learn how to make burgers in New York City. So, so this, okay. Uh, <laughs> so you and your buddy, you have this desire to go get a burger in Toronto. You decide at midnight to get in your car. You drive, presumably, like what, eight and a half hours to New York City that night? Yep. And um, you guys are eating a burger at PJ Clark's the next morning, essentially. Yeah, so we, we got there around 8 a.m., 8.30. I remember we walked around for a bit, went to Essa Bagel on uh, 3rd Avenue, had a bagel, and then kind of moseyed our way up to the bar around 10.30 and ordered a cheeseburger. <laughs> uh, did you tell your buddy when you guys were eating that this was your calling? Yeah, I had mentioned, I think I want to go back and open a burger place. And he said? He said it was a good idea. Um, but you had nothing but basically exposure to the industry through your waiting right? Nothing, no other formal training whatsoever. Zero. Yeah. I'd, I'd cooked at Planet Hollywood, um, you know, back when I was a kid, when it first opened and uh, waitering, that was it. So you come back, this is 2006. And then what? So I came back and I was like, okay, how, how is this going to happen? You know, I'm, I'm here. I got two jobs. I got two really good jobs. Uh, they were both really high paying waitering positions. Like, wait, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to go live in New York City to learn how to make this stuff. The good news is I was an American citizen, so it was very easy for me to um, 
make that transition. I had a meeting with both my managers at both jobs and I asked them for a leave of absence and they granted it to me and they said, let us know when you want to go. And I told them why I said, I want to go to learn how to make hamburgers. And, um, I then started to ask the question, okay, where am I going to live? How am I going to pay my mortgage here while I'm there? And a friend of mine, Lydia, who's very much a gift to me, she said, Sean, there's this place in Manhattan that is called the Menno House. And they give very, very cheap accommodation to like traveling Christians that are on a mission to do something in the city or get it, get education, that kind of stuff. So it's this brownstone in Gramercy Park at Second Avenue and Second uh, and Nineteen mm-hmm. that uh, the Mennonites owned, and they were just basically given rooms for really, really cheap. It was a beautiful place. So I called them and I said, "Okay, what's the deal?" They said, "Well, you know, we're pretty full, and you have to you have to basically write a paper and give us your reasons, and then it goes through a board, and then the board picks." And I was like, "Okay." And uh, so I downloaded their document. I wrote basically an essay of why I wanted to come. And uh, I said to myself, the only way I'm going to be able to get this, like, I need to meet this guy. I need to go and meet him and hand this in perfect personally. I just don't want it to, I just don't want to send it through an email. Let me go meet this guy. So I, I print the email, I print my essay and I used my points and I flew to Manhattan and I handed the director of this building his, my thing. And I said, I really want to get in. Let me know what you can do. He goes, okay, no one's ever dropped this off personally before. No problem. So about two weeks goes by, nothing. Three weeks goes by, nothing. Then I finally say, you know, I'm going to call him. I call him, and he I, he picked up the phone. He goes, I was just about to call you. I said, what's going on? He goes, the board read your essay. There were 600 applicants. They picked yours, and either the veil the they, and we just had a spot open up. That's exactly the times that you were you said you wanted to come. So it was this perfect storm of events, and it was like God ordained perfect and the rent was $420 a month in Manhattan. Okay, so 1 in 600. Yeah. get accepted. Do you have a copy of that essay you wrote? You know, I don't know. Do you remember anything from the essay that I just basically yeah, it was basically that um I felt I talked about vocation and I talked about it from a perspective of we are all supposed to do something. We all have a purpose. And I felt that God was calling me to learn how to make hamburgers and to change hamburgers in Toronto. That was basically the something. And uh, they liked it. I mean, it sounds kind of um, in- insane. Yeah, it sounds kind of comical. I mean, in a way, I mean, it's creative. Certainly, it's you're marrying religion with this idea of bringing the perfect hamburger to a city. I mean, it's compelling in, in its creativity. But it probably, I mean, you probably stood out as just being one of a kind. This whole journey is is highly spiritual. Um, I want to go back to something you said early on when you received your diploma. You said, you know, you knew you had these gifts. Uh, you just didn't know how to use them. Um, what gifts do you think you were blessed with? Well, back then, it was so raw. And all I can say to you is that when I was, you know, eight years old, I grabbed a bunch of coupons from Petro-Canada and I was selling them at Wildwater Kingdom. You know, when I was uh, in Bible college, I bought 900 boxes of cereal that had movie tickets on them and sold them at the theaters and, and you know, bought a motorcycle. Like there was just this ability to see holes, see opportunities and expose them. I did a thing with uh, Krispy Kreme when they first opened. I started buying boxes of donuts and selling them downtown Toronto, the towers, because all there was just one in Mississauga and the, and the lineups were insane. And 
I just bought them and started handing out flyers saying I deliver them. And so just, I just had this weird kind of way of making money in really strange ways. And I, and I knew that kind of the Mickey Mouse stuff of, you know, cereal boxes and that kind of stuff. I knew that it was just setting me up for something big, but I had, I, but I'm, I'm a, I'm always very, very fearful. I'm very scared of, uh, of things. And it, it takes me a long, it took me a long time to get the confidence to, to do something bigger. What, what do you think um, is the root of that fear? Is it failure or is it something else? It's, um, it's failure. It's uh, being laughed at. It's um, a bit of its success, not knowing if I can handle, handle the money or handle the, 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 the notoriety that comes with it. One of the prayers that I've prayed for over a decade is, God, don't give me more money than my character can handle. And um, I think I've done okay with that. I don't know. That is um, so inter like that that aspect sorry, sorry to interrupt and you've if you've got more to say on this uh, I want to hear it but the the whole element of like fear of success I don't think is is explored deeply enough in the entrepreneurial ecosystem like I think the obvious thing for for people that are starting a business is like what if it fails but I don't think they really examine the other side of of that coin which is what if this thing blows up like how am I going to handle this if it really scales. Yeah, it's a scary thing. And I didn't even go that deep. I mean, I was 14 stores when it, when, when it was done. So, um, you know, I couldn't imagine what, what 100 looks like or 1,000 looks like and how basically what, what the experience is, you just get isolated. The, the bigger things go, mm-hmm. the more and more you get isolated. And the less friends you have, the less people there are that are telling you the truth. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you just end up alone and, and miserable and it's not a, it's not a great place to be. You come back to Toronto, you have this vision. How do you start to build out the concept for the first store? So I came back and then I, I got my jobs back and then immediately there was the financial crisis. Hmm. So it was a, uh, and I didn't know anything about stocks or anything back then. Yeah. So when I, when I came back, I remember I had about 30 grand saved from my previous trip. And or before I was before I went on the trip, I had about thirty grand saved, and I said to myself, "Okay, banks aren't lending any money right now, so I got to work." So I got my two jobs back at Ruth's Chris and Air Canada Center, and the CN Tower, and I scooped ice cream at Sicilian Ice Cream, this little place in Little Italy, Toronto, and I just worked and I worked and I worked and I worked and I worked like a hundred hours a week. Then I picked up a, a breakfast and lunch job at uh, Mark McEwen's restaurant in Yorkville, in Toronto work breakfast and lunch there. And I just saved and saved and saved and saved. And I saved about, uh, maybe $85,000. And then I started looking for locations. So real estate prices were cheaper in Toronto. This was kind of post crisis, but they weren't super cheap. Mm-hmm. It didn't really affect things that much, but there were some opportunities, but landlords didn't really want to take a chance. And I learned quickly that I, I really learned the term covenant really quick. So covenant is this term in real estate where landlords want guaranteed rent. So it's not they don't they don't really take chances on you know just some guy who has a dream of opening a burger joint doesn't have much money. They want a Chipotle that has 200 stores where they'll guarantee the rent from those 200 locations. You know like they want covenant. Yep. So that forced me into taking a like basically it almost made me give up because I found some great spots that landlord landlords were like no they wanted national tenants. Um, so I kind of didn't really give up, but I just kind of put it on hold for a bit. And then my friend Lydia, who told me about 
the mental house, like who again has been very much a prophetic figure in my life. She called me and she said, I want you to go and look at this spot uh, in the beaches. And I said, I don't want to open in the beaches. She goes, no, I want you to just go look at it. And I said, uh, okay, I'll go take a look. So I went and it was this apartment building that had a tiny little storefront in, in, attached to it. And it was this little chicken place. And it didn't look like this guy had a customer in 200 years. The place was dirty. There was mice. It was uh, it was really ugly. And the, and the apartment it was attached to it was like it was like it's a lot nicer now. The new landlord cleaned it up, but it was like a crack house. There was a welfare office directly across the street, a porn shop right by the liquor store, the off-track bedding. It was just a horrible, horrible place. And I was like, Lydia, you got to be crazy. Like this is insane. She's like, No, Sean, just. He's selling it. He's selling it for super cheap. He was selling it for $35,000. Not the building, just the business. And he goes, she goes, I really just think that you should, you should take this spot. So I went back and looked at it, and I looked, and there was a Harvey's directly across the street. And it was busy. So I started counting how many people are going in. And there were some days they did 500 people. And I was like, there's something here. So I made a deal with the guy. I went in. I said, you know, I'll give you $22,000. We fought. We screamed and yelled. <laughs> he kicked me out. Actually, no, my original offer was 12000 That's why he kicked me out. It was 12000 And uh, we screamed and yelled, and we ended up, I think, at like twenty two five or $25,000 or something like that. So we did the deal, and uh, I spent two months scrubbing and filling holes and killing mice and didn't open until I was mouse-free and uh, cleaned it up. And I took the bars off the window and I said, we're going to make a place that's beautiful in a, in a, in a rough place. And, and biblically, I wanted to plant a garden in the midst of a, a rougher area. And it worked and uh, made a beautiful place. And it cost me everything I had. So I, I, I thought it would cost me like $50,000 and it cost me everything. And I had enough money to buy beef that day. If I didn't ha sell those burgers that day, it was downhill from there. I was going to go start hitting credit cards and things were rough. But we sold... 150 burgers that first day. And then uh, it just kept going. Wow. Okay. What about your staff? So so it's one thing to open it up, right? You use all your savings to get this thing open. Uh, was it just you behind the counter? First day? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. I, I got my brother to come help me out. Mm -hmm. My mom went in the back, started slicing vegetables and helping me grind meat. And I had a buddy named Adam who's always kind of been there for me. And he came and he worked a few shifts for me. 150 the first day. Yeah. And the next day, what happens? Next day, same thing. It just kept happening. But we never had a day where we didn't do at least $1,200 in sales. Okay. So yeah. what what's going through your head? Like you, you talk about fear of failure. This thing is open now, your first location. It's quote unquote working, right? The first, yep. the first version of this business that you have is working. What's going through your head? At that point, I was just, don't make any mistakes. Don't kill people. Make sure the book foods. Make sure everything's clean. It, it, it was. It was just keep going. There was the weird thing was that I was operating on burnout, and I was only a day in. And this is something that I realized after after I sold was that I was I had been working a hundred hours a week till the day I signed the lease for a year and a half straight, and. By the time I signed the lease and went into construction, I was also working 100 hours just to get the thing open. Hmm. So it was a bit of a blur. It was just keep. It was just keep going. I really didn't understand what was going on. I didn't know what it was. 
people were coming in within the first two or three weeks asking for franchises. And I was literally saying, look, I don't even know what tomorrow holds, let alone, like, I didn't know, I didn't even, I wouldn't even know how to franchise. I didn't know what a disclosure document was. I didn't know anything. And, uh, I was just, just trying to stay alive. I remember just literally every morning getting up, going to buy beef, buying pop, putting it in my car, driving it over and just trying to stay alive. So you've got your friend, you've got your brother, your mom, you guys are sort of this family and friends operation, yep. right? When did this become a real operation? Like when did you start to bring on staff? So it took about uh, two weeks before I started to realize that this, I had to start keeping account of the money that was in the till. Like I actually had to start because it was cash only. And I was just taking the money, putting it in my pocket and like going to the stores and buying stuff. We had no suppliers. We had nothing. So it took about two weeks before I realized, okay, I got to start getting legit here or things are going to go bad really quick. So kind of looking at my brother, looking at my friend, he's like, okay, I, I got to go back to my job. My brother says, I got to go back to my job. So we just started Craigslisting articles. I mean, ads, ads, ads. And people would come in. And my policy was hire every single person that came through the door. I pretended I was interviewing them, but really we were so desperate. We just hired everybody. It worked out. I mean, it was such a motley crew. It was, it was a rougher area. So we were getting skater kids and guys that were just, you know, normally nobody would hire. And, you know, they were all rough around the edges. But I realized, you know, so was I. And we trained. It was better in a way that we just kind of trained them from the ground up. And I kept those kids for a long, long time. Some of them I fired, but most of them I kept. And it was great. And it was the cool thing was they all grew with the business. They all saw they were just as excited for Burgers Priest as I was because it was something new and something like they tasted the burger and they, they loved it and they wanted to be a part of it so bad. The supply side obviously has evolved, right? As this business grows, yeah, that that has changed. Um, give me the scope of the supply side for that first location. And then as you grew, how did it change? The beef we were using from day one is the same beef that's being used now. It just became easier to get, became cheaper to get. It just got better because we were just able to age it better. And, and, and there was a third party kind of taking care of that rather than me doing it in the back. As far as what the beef is, where it comes from, all that kind of stuff, that's all proprietary and I can't, I can't share it. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. ElectroCast. There's so many, so many questions that I have related to scaling this operation. When you are in the market for a partner as a first-time entrepreneur and you're I'm assuming you're bootstrapping this or you've bootstrapped this to date and you're at location number three, you have aspirations to grow. How did you go about finding uh, this partner? They came to me. 
Yeah, my I had a real estate agent at the time, mm-hmm. and he did a lot of the deals for for these guys, and uh, they kind of knew they knew that he he knew me, and uh, they kind of made a an offer over the like just a, a verbal offer saying hey we're interested in something like this, and um, I thought it was interesting. So we set up a meeting. And that's how it worked, and then it took about a year to negotiate what that looked like. Mm-hmm. And uh, once we came to that, I was like, okay, let's do it. Was the personality fit important to you? Yeah, I took, I, I had to meet them and, uh, uh, it was based two brothers, uh, Alex and Mark Rikiki, great guys. And then, uh, one other partner named Sean Black, mm-hmm. great guys. I mean, there was, they're, they're considered the dream team in terms of the franchise business. The, there's three guys that have a very unique skill sets. So it's, uh, Sean was great at real estate and deal making. Uh, Alex was very the organizational kind of leader, the CEO, and then Mark Rikiki had a CFA background, so he's very good with finance. So it was a really, really good team. How did the financing setup change after these guys got involved? Uh, it didn't. I mean, my my stores remained uh, my stores. Everything was uh, nothing changed on my end, and we basically basically just set up a new entity um, that split the other stores fifty fifty and. Uh, we just went from there and then we just kind of made a deal that we weren't going to take money from these stores. We're just going to continue to just put it back into stores and keep rolling it in and rolling it in and making more stores. I mean, my stores never took on any debt, uh, downtown, but, uh, we eventually took a small line of credit to help float operations as we were expanding. That's rare, right? That, that must be a testament to how well you were growing this. Like what looking back, um, what were some of the things that you think you were doing well related to the whole P&L management of this whole business that made you successful versus some of the mistakes that are constantly made in the restaurant space? Well, it's hard to answer the question because there was a blessing that I had that it's possible that other guys didn't. I mean, I was doing ridiculous sales. I can't say the number. It was ridiculous sales mm-hmm. based with $1,200 rent. And I quickly realized that the the Oh, and my build out was like $60,000 or $80,000. So when typically guys are spending five, 600 or a million dollars, you know, or sometimes just crazy figures to open up restaurants, I was doing more sales than a Kelsey's, you know, <laughs> out of, out of 300 square feet yeah. and uh, 344 square feet. And that 344 square feet is front and back of the house. The front of the house was like 150 square feet. It was tiny. So I quickly realized that the way to make money here is to keep everything, everything tight and just make sure the food's super good. So my second location, I, I bought the, it was an asset sale again. I bought it for, I think, $56,000. I put about 40 grand into it and the rent was $2,900. Um, so I built my five restaurants downtown combined for $940,000. That's what people are paying to open one restaurant these days. If, hypothetically speaking, you were to go to a bank and get an operating line of credit for expansion, uh, you wanted to take on some debt, it would still be difficult, right, to get the financing approved just because of the nature of the whole restaurant category. Did you have any of those conversations? Like, were, were banks willing to lend given how profitable you were, or were they still skeptical? I never, I never broached the conversation because I didn't need to. So for my five stores, I never needed to get any money. To, so from the day I started to the day I sold, I never once borrowed any money. On the other end, on the other entity that we created, yep. um, we were just expanding so fast. 
because I expanded slow. Okay. So on this side, we were just expanding a lot faster as opportunities came. So from that perspective, we needed money. And to be honest, even in the, even in that level of profitability, the only reason we got a loan was because of the um, connections of my partners. I, I don't think we would have. It would have been a lot harder to get one to that if I didn't have those relationships. I wouldn't let. I wouldn't lend a restaurant money. Even one that was doing the numbers that say you were doing. Not unless I was, I'm a control freak. So it's not unless yep. I was, I was in, I was involved. The franchising piece. So the quality of operations as you scale up, it's a big topic in the restaurant industry question of whether or not you keep it corporately controlled or you expand through franchising. I can't remember. I think you might've already spoken about this, but you resisted. If I got this right, resisted uh, franchising on the basis of maintaining quality in the business. What more can you share on your belief around this whole topic? Yeah, I resisted franchising. I didn't believe it. I just didn't. Uh, I felt it was always, it's harder to grow corporately. You know, you have to come up with your money yourself. Um, the good side is you get to keep all the money. The problem is that the Arthur Wichard Act, which is the governing documents for franchise law, is very franchisee centered. I'll, I'll give you a scenario that made me change my mind and made me realize that franchising won't work. As you know, we grind it up. We grind our meat every morning. Every morning it's ground, it's put on the trucks, and it's delivered to all the restaurants. It's super fresh. You won't find a, a, a chain that does anything fresher than this. So typically, let's say a GM on a Tuesday morning in February, let's say that store orders, let's say 100 patties, just to throw a number out there. Mm-hmm. And that's what he orders. And all of a sudden, it snows that day. And he sells two patties, which happens, which when there's a major snowstorm, what they what the store deli- asked, asked to get delivered is drastically different than what they sell because of a snowstorm or something happens like a power failure where they have to close the restaurant or something happens. It's very rare, but it does happen. In those scenarios, a fr- if it was a franchise, the franchisee would have to, the next day, give that beef back. They would have to pay for it and then give that beef beef back. And it could be thousands of dollars of beef. The temptation for them to use it again the next day would be too great. And not only that, there's nothing I could do to stop them. It would take months of litigation to to stop them. And, And in that three, four months of litigation, they could be destroying your brand by selling stuff that you didn't approve. And no matter how tight paper is, it takes time. And that's one thing I learned is that you can have super tight paper and you can have all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted. But unless you're prepared to sue somebody, what are you going to do? And, and how long is that going to take? So uh, just to maintain the integrity of the brand, I, I decided that franchising was off the table. Still to this day. So um, Burger Spree has been acquired. We'll, we'll get to this in a, in a moment. Um, are they still sourcing beef that morning and tossing it, whatever they don't use out that evening? As far as I know, yes. I haven't heard anything otherwise, yeah. Recipe Unlimited, formerly known as Care Foods. Uh, this is a, a very old uh, legacy restaurant company, right? It's founded back in 1883. Um, just to paint a, a quick picture for people who might not be familiar with um, this company, they own and operate some of the most recognized brands in Canada, including... I'll just read a few names um, among others. Swish LA, Harvey's, The Keg, Milestones, Kelsey's, New York Fries, Beer Market, 
Elephant and Castle, the Pickle Barrel, um, and then of course you guys, the Burgers Priest. So when you started talking to, to Recipe, did they approach you or did, did you approach them? So basically what happened is that my partners and I, we were getting to the point where we had, they wanted to grow a lot faster than I wanted to grow. We both wanted to grow just the same speed, but I didn't have the capital to keep up with the growth that they wanted to do. So we wanted to go fast. They wanted to grow a lot faster. I was like, okay, well, let's just, you know, go, go, go the course. And so it just kind of came to the point where I was like, now would probably be a good time because it would allow the brand to keep going. And I could kind of, you know, tip my hat and say, job well done. And I'll, I'll touch into why in a second. And uh, they had the contacts through uh, just their own, you know, they're, they're, they, they play in those circles. So kind of word got out. And then uh, next thing I know, they one of these days they called me and they said, hey, do you want to come chat? And they said, you know, these guys are interested. And uh, that's how the conversation went. For me, the decision was super easy in the sense that what I realized about five years in was that there is a, that I, like, I can't speak to other entrepreneurs because there are, because I'm not like, I can't, I can't imagine being the type of person that could grow a brand to a thousand locations and be doing that for the rest of my life. For me, it was always about the food. It was about changing culture. It was about doing something new. And it became about HR and boardrooms and real estate and law, which was great because I got a you know working MBA, but I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't what I liked. I liked being in the restaurants. I liked creating food. I liked doing something that was that people loved. And that aspect of things that it was it, it was just wasn't there anymore. And, and not because I'd sold out or anything. It just that's just the it was the way that things played out. I looked around and I started seeing all these other burger joints opening. And not one of them was using a charbroiler. Everybody was using a, a griddle. Everybody was doing a smash burger, very similar. And what I had set out to do, which was to change the culture, happened. And when we opened the location in Edmonton and there was a lineup around the block, like almost a kilometer long for like a week straight with no advertising, I knew that Burgers Priest had achieved that, the goal of kind of changing what burgers are in Canada. And once I had achieved that, the fire for me was kind of like, that's it. I'm, I'm ready to do something else. You miss it? <laughs> I have a burger spreeze by my house that I drive by every once in a while. I don't even look. I don't even look. When I drive by a burger spreeze, I don't even look. And it's not because I don't want to look at it. It's because once you've given yourself over to something creatively, um, it kind of takes everything out of you. And once you realize you're not in control of it anymore, you just it doesn't matter. And uh, that's kind of what happened with me and burger spreeze. It's like, you drive, you just drive by and think that's, and the weird thing is that the exact same thing happened to me at Ruth's Chris. Whereas when I was at Ruth's Chris, I was working there for, you know, almost 10 years or eight years. And I'm, it was my life there every day. The guys that work there with you are family. You can never forget them. You know, the thing you're there, you're, you're with them. And I remember two weeks later driving home from the original beaches location, going home and I passed by it and I didn't even look and I couldn't even remember working there. And that's the exact kind of thing that's happening with Burgers Priest. And that's actually what makes me happy to, to realize I made the right decision. What's next for you? Definitely something in food. I'm, I'm thinking about 
getting into the pizza game and doing something new and revolutionary for Toronto, I'm not 100% ready yet. I am practicing a lot. I am cooking a lot, but uh, I'm not ready to throw it out there yet. Do you feel like your days are, uh, trying to search for the right words here, uh, too vacant since you sold? Like, does, does that feeling ever come up? Yeah, it does a lot. I've had a really, really rough time since I sold. It's been really rough. I've never fought with my wife more uh, than when I sold. Uh, things are a lot better now. Like Things are great now. Um, but man, for the first six months, it was extremely difficult because I was never home. So all of a sudden, I'm home now, and I'm telling her all the things I want done. And she's like, well, where have you been for the last five years you know like who are you to come in and say this is what i want the kids to eat or this is what i want to do and so it was rough it was and it was like i had to literally get to know my wife again and i realized that the woman i was married to was different than who i thought she was and it was hard and you know i started to research that went to counseling and realized that's something that you know sports players have to deal with like nhl hockey players they'll They'll retire and then they'll go home and they realize that this woman, they, they didn't know her because they were never home. They're always on the road. And so I experienced some of that. And, and through God's grace, it's been great. We're, we're doing amazing now. And my relationship with my kids is a lot better and things are great. But it was, it was a rough patch of being home and not having purpose and trying to make my mark at home and realize that you know, I'm treating my wife as like she was one of my employees. And that doesn't work. Okay, so do you feel like You've sort of gotten over the most difficult period of this. Yeah, I yeah. definitely do. Yeah, and and the burnout was part of it. Mm-hmm. Understanding uh, the fact that I was burned out and uh, I needed a lot of time to heal. So it's been about eighteen months now, and uh, I'm now just starting to laugh again, joke around again, be myself again, not de- not be so depressed, and and start to be me. And it's been uh, it's been a, a long journey, and I didn't think I'd. You don't know how sick you are. Right, you don't know when you're in it. You don't know how bad things are. How did you know? You're out of it, or how'd you find out? Um, I went to a really good friend of mine is a the pastor of the largest church in Canada. Mm. We went to school together, and he he's probably he's easily the best communicator in in North America right now. Like he's super 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 good, and he got invited to speak at a church at a conference at a church conference in Barrie. So he called me, said, you want to come with me? So I said, okay. So he flew down from Vancouver and he stayed at my place and then we went up. And uh, the pastor of that church was a guy named Kerry Newhoff, who is a uh, podcaster, a very good podcaster and uh, an author and a pastor. And he wrote a book about his own experiences of burnout. And I, I went to this conference. I've never met Kerry in my life. And it was about a week after I'd sold. And uh, I'm sitting there kind of in the green room while they're getting ready to speak. And Carrie walks in with a bunch of books for Mark as a gift. And he hands it to Mark. And I'm just sitting there and Mark's getting ready to speak. So I just pick up one of the books and I start leafing through it. And I just turn to this page. And it was 10 signs that you're burned out. And I start reading this and immediately started crying. Mm. Like every single thing it was saying was like, this is my life. Like what is going on? And I read this and started crying. And Carrie looks at me and he's like, like the guy who wrote the book, he's like, what's going on? I was like, dude, like, what is this? And he's like, let's go talk. And we went to his office and turns out that this guy, Kerry, is like the North American guru of burnout. 
and he has an incredible burnout story of his own and how he came out of it. And, uh, so it was pretty incredible and, uh, kind of read his books, read the, read the, read the material. And now 18 months later, I think I'm doing better. For those that might be listening and are interested in getting access to that list or some of these readings, where could they go? Uh, you Google Kerry Newhoff. He has a book called, uh, I didn't see it coming. And, um, the, yeah, it's all, it's all there. Okay. Uh, we've got a few minutes left. I want to ask you a a couple of quick last questions. Um, one more serious than the other. So the earlier on, you mentioned something about as you grow to a certain size, the people that you end up surrounding yourself with just become less authentic or, or use the word less truthful. How did you know that you were at that stage? And you said, you know, your friends kind of, you know, went away or whatever. Like, I'm curious to dig into that a little bit. Like, for those that are trying to grow personally and professionally and maintain a level of authenticity in their life, what tips could you share based on your experience? So what I did and what the commitment that I made was I I did two things. So I kept a social media persona that was completely unrelated to work. Um, So my Facebook page is just me. I never tweeted about Burgers Priest. I never status updated about Burgers Priest. I never did anything. I just kept going the exact same thing. I would tell my jokes, do my thing. You know, I'm I'm a libertarian Republican. So I make my funny cracks and stuff like that. And I just, that's what I do. And, and so I never changed that aspect of things. Um, I never bought a shiny new car. I drive a 96, uh, old, old car and a, and a 90, I have a 91 Mustang as a toy. I never, so I, I would do things that would just, wouldn't let me separate from, cause it was, listen, when you have nice things like that, like fancy cars and that kind of stuff, it, it, it doesn't, it, it, people, it separates you from people. There's, there's a separation that happens. And, uh, so I made a decision that I'm going to stay with all my old friends from high school. When we go out to dinner, we're splitting the check. We're not, you know, nothing changes. And I, I had to make a conscious decision to do that on the other aspect of things that the, the work circle, um, that's kind of where the, the phoniness is the people that are around you, um, not your partners, but like your the, the people that work with you, the employees, the the suppliers, the all the people that like they build your restaurants, all these people, they be, try and become your best friend, and you realize really quickly that these guys are they're, they're just in it for one thing. Because once once you're out, they never call. And um, yeah, it's, it's 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 very hard work to not to not be in those circles to to keep yourself away and just to to remain a, a sense of to keep a sense of normalcy. Did you ever feel like when you were growing? personally and professionally yourself, because obviously you were, I mean, there would have been a, a ton of learning just in this whole process. Um, even dating back to when you went to New York city, um, and learned, you know, th- this is really sort of a grassroots thing and then grow this thing the way you did. Do you ever feel like maybe it was time to let go of some of the older relationships in your life that you were just clinging on to because they were friends from high school? Let's say like you just had this like loyalty to them because you were childhood friends? So I'd kind of already gone through that process by the time I started Burgers Priest. Um, so really what was left over was kind of what, what I, what I had with, I'm sure in, I'm sure in that 
in the eight years or seven years of Deborah Cruz, there's probably one or two people that, that I had to make that conscious decision. But um, yes, 100%, you you have to make those decisions, and, and I did. I just don't know if I did it in, in, the, in the time of Burmese Priest. Looking back, um, you know, you this has been, uh, by the way, a really, really insightful conversation. Appreciate all the authenticity uh, and the experience sharing around it, all of these topics. Um, what is the one thing that that you think you've taken away from this whole experience that you'll really hold on to? I'm sure there are a number of, of things and lessons learned, but um, is there one thing that kind of stands out in your mind as something that um, you want to put that feather in your cap and hang on to um, and take with you as you go forward? Yeah. Well, the biggest lesson I learned, you know, they say there's three types of OCD. Mm-hmm. Um, they say there's the kind of OCD that is, uh, you know, the guy who thinks his hands are always dirty has to keep washing them. And then there's the other OCD that um, I think I left the stove on. You know, let me, I got to go back home and turn the stove off. And then the third type is doomsday. Um, and I'm definitely in that last category that I always think that the, the, the shoe is going to drop and, um, uh, the worst possible scenario is going to happen. Um, what, what I learned towards the end was that, um, I need to start to, um, be less emotional about day-to-day decisions that when it comes to, to business, because there's an aspect of that, that, that is what made me who I am. I mean, uh, the, the CEO of Intel, I forget his name, but he wrote a book called only the paranoid survive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so there's an aspect of the doomsday that is what I think made me who I am and makes me who I am. And I think made burgers priest who we were. Um, but, uh, there is an aspect of that that can go too far. And I'm definitely guilty of that, of doing that during burgers priest time. And, and that's the one thing that I'll take with me to say that I can't do again. Where do you think that stems from? Again, it's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I've gone a lot of counseling trying to figure that out. I have uh, a fear of poverty. I have a feel of losing everything. I have a feel of fear of abandonment. My dad committed suicide when I was three. I don't know if that's where it comes from. Probably does. There's a, uh, there's just this fear of losing everything and being on the street that I still, with this is the sick part that even today with the amount of money I was given and I'm essentially retired, uh, I still have it. And I still live in this thing that, oh, you know, the banks are going to go bankrupt and, uh, you know, that, that kind of craziness. I still have to wrestle with that. So I don't know where it comes from. I just know that I'm doing a lot better than I used to. So again, appreciate you sharing. Uh, I think there's a lot listeners will take away from this one, uh, both professionally and personally, Sean. So in the, in the last couple minutes, uh, I'll give you the last words. Um, normally, obviously, people would, would point listeners to um, their active business or website. Um, for more about you, where do you want to send listeners to? For more about me? Oh. Uh, or Burger's yeah. Priest, for that matter. If you, Yeah, if you go, still go to Burger's Priest. It's great. Burger's great. Nothing's changed. The guys that I partnered with are still operating it. Uh from what I understand, care is pretty hands off and nothing's changed. I still have friends that work there that are happy. I have a, uh, uh, I've, I've visited the restaurants. I've eaten the food. It's still amazing. I still think it's the best. And, uh, yeah, I'm proud of it. This has been awesome, man. Really appreciate you taking the hour and change to do this. No problem, man. It's a pleasure to do it. Thank you. 
E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. If you like E2, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio. Leave us a review. Even become an exclusive supporter of the show. Visit glow.fm slash e2 to do so. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.